Gentlemen, week five of our officer training, uh, chapters 25 to 29 in your Westminster Confession of Faith, which we will be reading, I intend to read. Um, These are short chapters. Uh, 29 is a little bit long, uh, but I would like to go through in some detail uh, the, the words of the text uh, this evening, and we're on page 123 in our David Hall Manual for Officer uh, Training, <coughs> Session 4A, The Church and Its Sacraments, um, recognizing his, um, the reason why he includes the end times according to the Westminster Confession. Uh, we're not going to get into that tonight. Uh, I, we might get into this in a later week. I don't remember if we do, uh, but we'll, I'll leave that to you to read and to consider. Uh, along with what the confession has to say. So this evening, we intend to talk about two major topics, related topics, the church and its sacraments. Um, He begins this chapter on page 123 with a fantastic uh, statement, a true statement, that I would encourage us to think well about whether or not we act like though this is true. Man has never devised any organization equal to the church in its educating and uplifting power. Now, there are many, in fact, the majority, I think, in the world who would deny the legitimacy of that statement. Uh, in fact, it's, it's somewhat ironic that people who work in these places, hospitals and universities, uh, deny the fact that most of our hospitals and great universities were founded by Christians who were trying to benefit people who needed help and educate people who needed to learn. Uh, And so the church has always been historically behind these sorts of things. And what's interesting about Hall's statement here, and this this is worth noting, He says that man has never devised any organization equal to the church in its educating and uplifting power. And I think by implication here, we would say that man did not devise the church either. Uh, So part of what he's implying here is that the church is God's design. It's God's organization. It's God's institution, uh, if we can use that term, uh, which he has put in the world as an embassy of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, And from this place, people are sent out into the world to do the things that God has given us to do. Uh, He he equates this to Jesus' statement, by their fruits you shall know them. In other words, part of the church's being the church is doing the sort of things that the church ought to be doing. There's a fruit-bearing reality that comes with being a church. This is not only uh, true in terms of individual Christians and individual impact, but in terms of the societal effect of an organization. And so, in other words, if the church exists as a brick-and-mortar structure on the corner of two intersecting roads, and it never exists beyond the borders of the piece of land that we pay taxes on, then we're doing something wrong as a local church, and we're doing something wrong as individual Christians. The church ought to have a societal impact in the world around it. There should be a fruit-bearing quality to our church. Jim talks about the outward face. Uh, Eric is, week by week in our morning worship, does an excellent job of emphasizing our extolling the glory of God from this place to the ends of the world dynamic of Christ's covenant church, right? We model the grace of God that we hear preached on Sunday morning and evening in our smaller communities, whether that's homes or workplaces or neighborhoods, and we ought to be going out to see God's name extolled to the ends of the earth. And so if we're, uh, the phrase I like to use is fortress church, 
uh, then we're not doing church the way that God designed for it to be done. You'll notice, and I'm moving away from the, from the book for a second here, you notice how in the Old Covenant, God's design for his people was to attract people through gravitational pull to the one place that he had decided to put his name and his glory, to the temple. There's a reason why the temple was so majestic and why the wisdom of Solomon was so world-renowned and why the obedience of Israel was meant to stand up, to raise a flag in the, in the midst of a pagan world, was that way people... For example, the Queen of Sheba would come all the way to Israel to say, tell me about this God that you serve. I've heard great and wonderful things about you and him. I see this temple. Clearly, you guys take your worship of this God seriously. It's overlaid top to bottom with gold. And so there was a reason. There was a gravitational pull. But at Pentecost, when the Spirit of God descended on the church and indwelt the believing Christian people, they were sent out into the world, rather, as mobile tabernacles, going into the ends of the earth with the good news of Jesus Christ, with the gospel. And so the church does not exist in, uh, uh, principally in a gravitational system of uh, evangelism anymore. Rather, uh, uh, I believe the term is centripetal force, right? Forcing outward into the world around us. Uh, the proof text for something like this, while we might think of Matthew 28, go therefore into all the world. I think Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7 is, is key when he says God has never dwelt in a place or a building made by human hands. He was with Abram in Mesopotamia and he was with the Israelites in the wilderness and he certainly doesn't need to be confined to that hill back there. Uh, and so that's how we think of the church now. Now, uh, the Westminster uh, Assembly <clears throat> in chapter 25 begins their outline of the church. If you've got the little book, I think it's page 111 in mine. I think these little ones are all the same. Um, he wants to concentrate, Hall, and, and we're going to follow this outline because this is what you guys have been reading, uh, on three key areas. The church, the sacraments, and church order. Now, church order and governance we're coming back to in week 12, I think it is. So that'll be in August so just bear in mind that we're not going to get there tonight uh, uh, in our time, in our hour. In each of these areas, the Westminster faith had a definite and large impact. In these three areas, we see the principles of the Westminster faith put into practice, the church and the sacraments. Uh, and, and I hope that as we look at this, we'll see the proximity with which Christ's covenant church practices these, these things in light of our confessional standards. So the, let me read. I want to read chapter 25. I, normally I like to engage and encourage reading from people out here, and I'm sure that many of you guys are like really amped up to read chapter 25 of the Westminster Confession for all of us, but I'd have to come over and lean over you because of the microphone. And so just for my back's sake, I'm just going to read this from over here. Okay, <clears throat> chapter 25, excuse me. <clears throat> the Catholic or universal church, which is invisible, and there's going to be a delineation here, visible and invisible, so uh, bear that in mind, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ the head thereof, and is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. So the, the Catholic Church, which we read the... Um, Athanasian Creed we're doing in our evening worship right now, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, which all use the term Catholic. Just speaking about that universal church, it is the whole number of the elect. So what's one implication of this statement that some of our uh, more dispensationally leaning brothers, brothers, brothers? Uh, I was going to say brethren and then change my mind, mid-word. Uh, brothers might 
disagree with. That the Jews are were members of the church at all. That there That's right. That's right. Uh, they would say, suggest that there are two peoples of God, the nation of Israel and the Gentile church, largely Gentile church. Whereas what our confession teaches and, and, and scripture affirms is that the church is the whole number of God's elect from Adam through the last man, woman or child who is called into fellowship with God by salvation. And it's all that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one. So this is an important point, and it's a, it's a foundational element of what we believe as Reformed and Presbyterian Christians, and here at Christ Covenant Church, that our doctrine teaches that the church of God is one people. And you're going to hear, you'll have read Hall use the term continuity uh, in, ter- in talking about the sacraments. That continuity idea is one of the major uh, lines of divergence between dispensationalism, which emphasizes discontinuity, and Reformed theology, which will emphasize continuity. And so being well-versed in these things is very important for men who desire to lead in the church as officers in the church to be able to articulate why, to a visiting person or a potential member, we believe that the church is the total number of God's elect from out, throughout time. <clears throat> Number two, the visible church. So we had invisible, universal Catholic, invisible, all those elect. The visible church, which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel, not confined to one nation as before the law. So there's a unique distinction there. Consists of all those throughout the world that profess true religion and of their children. Notice the the deeply covenantal nature of the confession's language here in uh, chapter 25, part 2. It not only consists of those who profess true religion, but also their children. This will come back to us in the chapter on baptism. And it is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. So illustration that I like to use, uh, use this recently in another context, perhaps with one of you. Um, In 1997, I believe it was, there was an F3 tornado that ripped through downtown Miami, Florida. It tore glass off of skyscrapers and upended cars in inner city streets in Miami. Now, is anybody familiar with the TV show Storm Chasers? Storm Chasers on the Weather Channel. It's these guys uh, who are just north of insane, who ride around in like heavy vehicles that they put uh, plate metal shields all over, and they've got little slats. It looks very apocalyptic, little slats to look through the front windshield. And they go around finding tornadoes in order to videotape the inside of a tornado and the destruction that they cause. Guess where Storm Chasers never go? Miami. Because just because one time there was a tornado in Miami doesn't mean that that's where you go to find tornadoes. They go to Tornado Alley. They go to Arkansas and Oklahoma and Ohio and Kentucky and so forth. Because ordinarily, if you want to find a tornado, you go to the place where tornadoes are ordinarily found. And so Hall's comment here, it was unthinkable for any organism except the church. Excuse me, that's not what uh, the part I wanted to say. Oh, um, where is it? Oh, well, he says it in here, and it's, um, oh, here it is, on page 124, the center paragraph, toward the bottom, just to the right of 25.2. Thus, the high position of the church is to be that ordinary mechanism which nourishes and accompanies salvation. It was unthinkable to the biblical students at the Westminster Assembly, that doesn't mean students like 
you know, in school. It means they were students of the word. That a person might be saved and then not be a part of the household of faith. And so we ought to be, of course, evangelistic in our interaction with our neighbors and friends and coworkers and so forth. But ultimately, we expect that this is the place that the church of Christ is the place where people will ordinarily find God and then be nourished in God. In Christ Jesus. And so this is an important point uh, out of which, out of the visible church, there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. Now, are there stories about the fella in Pakistan who had a dream to go walk over the mountain and knock on a red door and ask about a man named Jesus? Sure. But that's not what I'm praying for. What I want my unsaved mother-in-law or father-in-law or neighbor or friend to come to Christ. I invite them to church because the ordinary and Outward means of grace are applied to God's people and those privileged to be present Lord's Day by Lord's Day. So watching us participate in the Lord's Supper, watching our children and new professing believers be baptized, listening to the preaching of God's Word, that's what we expect to have an effect on lost souls. We ought to have, frankly, a high view of the church, a very high view of the church, um, most of you know my background coming from a, um, a non-denominational sort of Baptist background and into the Reformed faith. Uh, one of the reasons that we came to Christ Covenant Church over a year and a half ago now was to have our children baptized. We were fully convinced of covenantal baptism, which we're going to get to. Uh, we were fully convinced of the position of covenantal baptism. And I was asked by somebody one time, well, why don't you just baptize your children then if it's that big of a deal? And my answer was, because my ecclesiology is too high to do so. Because people are baptized into the church, not into my bathroom. And so it's important for us to have a high view of the church as men who aspire to be officers of the church. The office of elder and deacon is a God-ordained, authoritative office that carries with it responsibility and burden. And if we have a low view of church, which is very prevalent in our culture right now, this deconstructionist church model, everything's small group, decentralized, uh, corporate worship is kind of the, the last thing. Yeah, if we get to that, but so long as we get to our, our community group on Wednesday, that's what really matters because that's where we meet with our friends and confess our sins to each other. Uh, those, are, those are valuable aspects of being a Christian, but we ought to have a high view of the church, Okay. And I'm unapologetic about that. I think that Christ had a high view of the church, bled and died for her, in fact. And so we ought to have a high view as well. Unto this Catholic visible church, the visible church, uh, Christ hath given the ministry, oracles, and ordinances of God for the gathering and perfecting of the saints in this life to the end of the world. That's an encouraging statement, isn't it? That we know that God has given to this world the church and she will survive until Christ returns. Now, in different ages, she has gone through different stages of visibility and health and so forth. We know that to be true. Uh, And we may be entering a time where that becomes more or less true in the coming years or decades. But there will always be a remnant of God's people alive on earth to worship him and declare his marvelous works. That's encouraging to us. It means that we know that no matter how bad things get, the church will survive. Even if we don't, there's something about, uh, uh, I don't mean to be 
crass about this, but there's, there's a sort of esprit de corps that exists within the covenant community that means that the church itself is more important than the individual members thereof, and she will last until Christ comes back to call her home. And that's an important reality for us to know in days that seem to be growing increasingly dark. The church will not be overcome. The gates of hell, in fact, will not prevail against her. Uh, And God himself doth by his own presence and spirit, according to his promise, make them, those ministry oracles and ordinances, effectual thereunto. For the perfecting of the saints is what that means. In other words, it's not by however articulate a pastor or teacher a particular church may have, or however business savvy or, or wise a group of elders a session may be, but rather it's God by his spirit who makes the ordinances, oracles, and ordinances and ministry of the church effectual unto the perfecting of the saints. And so, in other words, the, the divines recognize that we don't put our hope in any man, even the best pastor this side of the Atlantic, or maybe both sides, right? And, and I agree. I, I mean, we are uniquely blessed at Christ Covenant Church, but our hope is not in Neil's continued physical health or preaching ability. It's in the Spirit of God taking the things that we do here in shepherding Christ Covenant Church and her people, and he makes them effectual unto the perfecting of the saints. And so we have to remember that there's a humility that comes with holding office in the church because we never look at ourselves as the ones who are uh, of our own sweat and toil doing the work that the Spirit's doing. This Catholic church has been sometimes more and sometimes less visible, um, which we just mentioned, and particular churches, which are members thereof, are more and less pure according as the doctrine of the gospel is taught and embraced ordinances administered, talking about sacraments, and public worship performed more or less purely in them. This is really helpful. Samuel Miller, uh, he, I I believe it was Samuel Miller, not in his ruling elder, but it's in another book. He talks about the difference between a a purer or a less pure church, a more pure or a less pure church. And we're often, we, we talk in such stark contrast, very black and white, right? Well, you're Republican or you're Democrat, right? Um, you either, you know, you like this sports team or you hate them. Like we have very black and white approaches to life in general. And there's a danger that comes with thinking about the church in terms of true and false church only. Uh, there are churches out there that we would disagree with on a number of topics. Some even fairly high up the list of significance or priority. We ought to be very careful of using language like impure or false church in light of doctrinal convictions or in light of the fact that they have yet to uh, lay hold of what I refer to as the better portion. Right. So Miller said, I don't believe that Presbyterianism is the perfect church. I simply believe it's the zenith of ecclesiology this side of heaven. And so it's okay to say we believe that what we believe is true, and we believe that people who are in different camps aren't in the same place uh, as we are according to what Scripture teaches, but we ought to guard against the sort of divisive language that calls uh, our brothers in different churches that are worshiping God uh, false churches. There are, are, of course, false churches. But the divines were quick to say, and don't forget, you had Episcopalians, you had Presbyterians, you had Congregationalists and Independents, all present among the divines, right? And of course, at the, at the top of the pile were the Scots, 
right? And so you had all these, all these folks who were uh, hashing out these details of what we believe and what Scripture teaches, and they recognized, look, if we say Presbyterianism is it, now if you read the Confession, it certainly leans Presbyterian, right? Uh, there's no denying that. But if they say, and, you know, those Congregationalists, mm, false church, they've ostracized a, a large majority of fellow faithful believers who had yet to come to a full biblical realization of church polity. So, uh, be careful with our um, Presbyterian Reform pride. The purest churches, and here's why, under heaven are subject to both mixture and error, and some have so denigrated as to become no churches of Christ but synagogues of Satan. Nevertheless, there shall always be a church on earth to worship God according to his will. Self-explanatory. And there is no other head of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ. Obviously, an anti-Roman Catholic um, Statement being made there in part 6 of chapter 25. Um, Let me look at my notes here from Hall's book. I I think this is important. He makes a, he he lumps the communion of saints. So chapter 26, which I don't, um, I don't think I'll, that's short. I don't think I'll read it though for time's sake. Uh, But he lumps the communion of saints together in this. And so I'm just going to use Hall here to identify a few significant uh, points for us to bear in mind. The communion of saints, which we routinely confess in the Apostles' Creed, uh, is significant and was significant to the Westminster divines. They have a chapter about the communion of saints, the the brotherhood of the believers, the fellowship of the body of Christ, uh, which sees our lives more in terms of corporate nature than in individualistic interests. The communion of saints recognizes the significance of our togetherness in Christ. Uh, Chapter 25, speaking of all those throughout the ages and all those currently living, both within our local body and, and around the world. So the communion of saints is important. Um, <clears throat> have you thought to yourself before when singing um, hymns, you look down there at the bottom and find out when they were written, and you see something that was written in 16-something or other, or 15-something or other, or 3-something or other, right? And you think to yourself, in this moment, as I'm singing to God, I am joining my heart together in communion with brothers and sisters who have been dead for almost 2,000 years or 1,000 years or 500 years, and together we are worshiping God in one voice because they're with him right now doing the same thing. There's something about the corporate nature of the church that's so important to our confession and to our faith and to Scripture. There's not a lone ranger Christianity uh, portrayed for us in the pages of the Bible. And the communion of saints... Uh, He says here, yet few of us have as sophisticated a view or practice of the communion of saints as these divines did. We confess it uh, in the third stanza of the Apostles' Creed, uh, but then practically speaking, what does it mean to you and to me uh, as potential office holders in the church, officers in the church, or just as members of Christ's covenant church to really live out what it means to have communion with the saints? It ought to mean something, right? It ought to be reflected in the way that we, uh, the way that we do hospitality. It ought to be reflected in the way that we think about our time and our use of it. Uh, I, I'm ashamed to say I can't count on, with my shoes off. I can't count the number of times that I've said to someone, ah, "I've got this thing that I really want to do," and it's really what I really mean is I got a nap to take. 
right? And, uh, or or some, some small project. Now, of course, doing projects around the house for my wife is really important, and spending time with my kids is very important. And in fact, I would be negligent in my responsibilities before God if I failed to do those things. Uh, um, it, you know, and you can couch that under the banner of, well, I was being hospitable to other people, right? I can't neglect the most important flock that I've been given. But often our hospitality and our use of time or our use of money is not reflective of our confession of faith that I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, right? <clears throat> We've talked about this before, I think in our first week here. I, and, and some of you guys are, are purposefully avoiding me, I think, and making eye contact during corporate worship. <laughs> some of you are doing a pretty good job, and I've made good eye contact with a couple of you. Some of you just you know, clearly are looking away. It's like there's a fly flying around you, and you're trying to make eye contact with him. David's my, my, is the best right now. David and Jacob, I think, give me the best eye contact on Sunday. Um, and actually, I would encourage you, Charlie Donahoe gives really good eye contact when we're singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another as well. So if you can make eye contact with Charlie, please do. I'm always trying to beat your eyes, and you're always away. Oh, that's because I'm trying to find all the rest of these guys, Zach. That's what it is. Got me. <laughs> next time, uh, I will make, I will make, it's going to be awkward next time. <laughs> But when we do our confession of faith, when we do our confession of faith, one of the, one of the valuable, one of the valuable uh, aspects of memorizing the creeds that we confess here is that you can recite them without staring down at a hymnal. And instead you can look at each other and say, when, when the elder says, what do you believe? You say, I believe in God the Father Almighty. And we're saying that to each other. And when I look at you and I say, I believe in the communion of saints, and then have no, no fruit of that in my life, what am I saying? I'm saying, I believe in saying this clause out loud because everybody else is doing it. That's what, I, that's what I'm showing with my life. And so as men who desire to serve as officers in the church or lead in your homes, or who simply believe what our Apostles' Creed tells us, we ought to be people whose homes are open in hospitality, whose money is available to help those in need around us, whose time is dedicated to those in our lives among the community of saints who are in need of our uh, 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 friendship and fellowship and camaraderie and whatever the case may be, or physical help. One of the reasons our deacons are so valuable at this church is because they're, they serve the practical needs of the church. And we're going to get to this in a couple of weeks. But our deacons especially need to have that communion of saints mentality as they look out among the body and see, who do I need to go to and serve and minister to? Now, Hall's really explicit here, and I'm very thankful that he is on page 124. He says, of course, this communion of saints, and he's reflecting on uh, chapter 26, um, 2. Three, of course, this communion of saints does not take away or infringe against the possession of personal property as if a socialistic approach to property was taught in Scripture. Uh, so don't miss that. Uh, you know, the, the texts for that are obviously found in Acts chapters 2 and 5 or 4, uh, where they held all things in common. Everyone was bringing their stuff together and, and they were supporting everyone as they had need. But it certainly doesn't say that everybody just, they flattened everything down to zero and then redistributed evenly among them. In fact, Peter's words to Priscilla and Aquila were what? Wasn't the money yours while you still had it? The home was yours. The property was yours. You could have done whatever you wanted. If you wanted to give us 15%, you should have said so. But don't come here lying to the Holy Spirit, right? And so you have authority over your personal property. Otherwise, what do we do with the sixth commandment, right? 
The Bible teaches personal property. And so Alex is not obligated to sell his car and then give the proceeds to everybody here for a tank of gas next week. But if Alex sees that Drew is really, really struggling and he has the means to help him, part of believing in the community of saints and being a part of the visible body of Christ and the universal Catholic Church ought to imply that if he knows, he ought to try to do something to help his brother out. Right? Now... Paul says in Galatians 6.10 to do good unto all people, particularly to those in the household of God. And now this is also lost in some of our current contemporary uh, understanding of what church is. Some of what we see uh, in, uh, in large churches, mega churches, for example, are really prone to emphasizing the outward face at the expense of the inward care of the body of Christ. And I think there's a mistake there. Because we don't teach people that the gospel makes a covenant community by giving everything that they need to them without sharing the gospel. Rather, what they're supposed to do is sit out here looking at the church loving itself and caring for itself and ministering to one another and pouring out individual gifts into the corporate body for the mutual upbuilding and go, I want to be in that Right? We want to draw people in by our society within a societiness, the communion of saints within the church, by the way we express Christian love and charity towards one another, which is why we have to do good to all people, especially, particularly to those in the household of faith. But if we see hurting people out here in the world, which we don't want to ignore, and we simply give them a big check and leave them out there, then what they've really learned is that if I'm in misery, the church will come help me in my misery, not welcome me into the family of God, right? We want to be attractive. Uh, I, I use the analogy in church discipline of being on a boat. Um, <clears throat> church discipline, I, I equate to being on a ship has gone down and all of us are in a lifeboat together. Think Titanic, right? The water's really cold. Leonardo DiCaprio is already dead and the water is frigid and it's nighttime. And so we're, we're out there on the water, and, um, and uh, Will has been put in charge of the boat. He's the captain of our boat. The ship's captain said, Will, make sure your number one concern, no water in the boat. Water in the boat, bad. You know, keep the boat dry. And you say, got it. I'm ready to go. And he looks over, and Jacob is in the back with a little bucket, just doing this, bringing water into the boat, right? He's like scooping water in the boat. And Will goes, Jacob, what are you doing, man? Water stays outside the boat. Don't. Don't bring water on the boat. And you go, oh, yeah, I, no problem. I won't do that anymore. Waits till Will turns around. He starts putting water in the boat again. And so Will goes, okay, hold on. Two, I need two guys. I need Jason and I need Drew. You go back there and tell Jacob we see you and what you're doing is going to kill all of us. Stop bringing water in the boat. And so Jacob goes, oh, my bad, guys. <clears throat> I didn't realize that. I'm not, uh, I'm, you know, I'm not an aquatics guy. I thought that we wanted water in the boat. It was going to keep our feet wet. So I'll stop doing that. And everybody kind of leaves them alone. And they turn back around. They see Jacob back there again, scooping water in the boat with his bucket. So now what happens is we grab the two biggest guys in the room and we throw Jacob out in the ocean. Right? Yes, we do. We throw Jacob out in the ocean. Why? Because we want a school of sharks to come around and nibble at his toes for him to realize that being out of the boat is so much worse than being inside the boat. And he's going to go, I understand now. Water bad because of the sharks. Let me back in. I will make sure nobody else puts water in the boat because he's been tested. He's been, uh, he, we've allowed the being in the world to have its effect on him and he wants to come back in the boat, right? And so he comes back in the boat, and now he's scooping water out. He wants to get all the water out of the boat. And so church discipline works like that, right? There was a reason I started talking about this boat thing, and um, it's been lost on me now. What were we talking about? The communion of saints being in a boat? I don't know. 
What was it? Yeah, that's it. We want people out there in the ocean to see us in the boat being dry. We don't want to throw MREs out to them in the ocean and be like, eat some food, you know, leave some behind you so the sharks leave you alone. We don't want to chuck food out to them in the ocean and chum the water around them for Satan to come up and just attack them again. We want them in the boat. And so how do we do that? By living as a community of saints within the boat, right? And so thank you for whoever got me back on that. We bring ourselves together in the boat and we love one another and minister to one another and we take turns scooping water out and rowing and feeding each other and so forth that's what the community of saints looks like in the church so don't miss that dynamic as we relate to the world all right sacraments in 25 huh any questions on the church and the community of saints i apologize guys Uh, this is uh this is like exhaustion adrenaline talking right now so if i'm going too fast i sincerely apologize Sacraments. One of the primary callings and exclusive responsibilities of the church is to administer the sacraments. Let me take you back to my uh, story a moment ago about why I didn't baptize my children uh, in the bathroom at my home. is because the administration of the sacraments is an exclusive responsibility of the church. So two things here. Hall is really leaning towards the fact that the sacraments are given to the church rather than other agencies or institutions. In other words, the parachurch, fill in the blank, whatever that looks like, has not been given the role of administering the sacraments of the church in the world. It's one of the reasons that I I have a particular uh, level of heartburn over like summer camp baptisms and those sorts of things where kids at at summer camps will get together and one of them will confess faith in Christ, which we love. I love that that happens. And then they're baptized in front of all their friends at the lake at the camp or something like that, uh, which I understand. I understand why people do that. Right. I'm, I'm not denying why, where that comes from, the motivation for something like that. But when we baptize a covenant child here at our church. Think about what's happening in that moment. That child is being brought into the covenant community at Christ Covenant Church in Greensboro, North Carolina. That means each one of you who are members of this church and your families are now covenantally bound to the nurturing and edification and upbringing of that child in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And that child is now bound to you as he or she grows in grace and faith and becomes an active communicant member of this church to participate in the means of grace and, taking us back to my eye contact thing, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with you all in worship of our God, our God Almighty, right? We talk about improving upon our baptism as Reformed Presbyterians, right? Improving upon our baptism. And so I was baptized many, 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 many years ago. And I have children who were baptized a year and a half ago. And some of you were baptized before I was born. And when you witness, let's say, um, Eleanor Voles, our new young covenant child. I don't know that, that they intend to baptize her. I think we have a baptism coming up in August of one of our covenant children. So let's, let's pick that one. One of our covenant children is going to be baptized coming up in August. When you witness that baptism, the administration of the sign and seal of God's promise to cleanse this child from its sin, to pour out his wrath against that child on Christ if he or she believes in him by faith, and to send his Holy Spirit to cleanse this child and enable him or her to walk in newness of life, you are reminded of the promise of God to do all such things for you who have called out to him in faith. 
So the Lord's Supper is a perpetual reminder of our covenant fellowship with God. It's the maintenance part of our covenant signs and seals, right? Baptism is the initiatory element of, our, of the uh, sacraments, right? You're brought into the covenant community. And the Lord's Supper is the maintenance part where we, we remind ourselves that we are in the covenant community. But every time someone is baptized at this church and we witness it, we're reminded of our own entrance into the covenant community and the relationship we have with God by faith and the promises that he made to us and the cleansing of our sin and the washing away of our transgression and the pouring out of his spirit and the fact that Christ took the wrath that we deserve, the flood of God's judgment against us on the cross. That's not given to the camp counselor. It's given to the church. Again, we need to have a high view of the church because the church has been entrusted with the ordinances, the, the sacraments that Christ gave to, uh, to her, to his people. Again, Hall is really leaning on the church versus parachurch. I want to remind us that, it, that this includes the church versus individual, right? There are things that the church is called to do that individual Christians have no business doing, and there are things that individual Christians are called to, choose, called to do that the church, frankly, has no business doing, Right? And so this is the example that I use as a kind of a a throwaway example. Um, But should Christians or can Christians or ought there be Christians who operate a soup kitchen? Yeah, what a great ministry, right? What a great thing for Christians to invest their money in serving the community, opening a soup kitchen and feeding the downtrodden and poor and oppressed in a community. Now, should a church have a soup kitchen? No. No, a church should not have a soup kitchen. That's not one of the ministries given to the church to do. But Christians within the church can together get together and, and operate a soup kitchen. But these two things are apart. We've been given the ministry of the word and the sacraments, the ordinary means of grace by which the Holy Spirit makes them effectual under the perfecting of the saints in this world uh, among the communion of saints, right? But Christians are the ones sent out into the world to bear fruit in keeping with their relationship with God, to walk in a manner worthy and so forth, and to exercise hospitality and service and care and so forth in the world. And so I want to make sure that we're clear on the the church versus parachurch versus individual aspects of the sacraments specifically. So let's, let's bring this down to the sacrament level. Should an individual Christian baptize his or her child? Now, I'm not, talking about, I'm not talking about some extreme circumstance. You know, in some part of the world somewhere, a guy becomes the first Christian who's ever lived in that place, and his children are now covenant children, and what happens there? I'm, I'm not talking about that. I'm saying, should, you know, Steve down the road there become a Christian? Not really sure he wants to go to church, but he, he's pretty convinced of covenantal baptism, and so he baptizes his kid over the sink. Um, We would say no, that that person should not do those things by practice because it's not been given to the individual. It's been given to the church. Likewise, and this might be interesting for some of you to note, uh, page 127, I'm going to make a quick jump to Lord's Supper here. Um, The second sacrament is the Lord's Supper. And in chapter 29, private masses are ruled out as is the denial of the cup to the people, the worshiping of the elements, the adoration of the elements, or the reference, re-sacrifice of Christ in the Mass. Right? So very strongly worded against the Roman Catholic practice, where um, y'all, y'all, know, y'all know this, right? The Latin term uh, that's said at the Mass, hoc est corpus meum, right? That's the, this is my body, right? The hoc est corpus meum. Well, because the, the um, priests in the Middle Ages were so illiterate, 
and incapable of performing Mass according to the standards, they would mumble through the standards, and that's where we get the phrase hocus-pocus. Hoc est corpus meum is really just them mumbling hocus-pocus. It was some magical incantation that caused the body, and the bread and the wine to change, right? Which is why you hear hocus-pocus, not the movie with Bette Midler, obviously, but uh, the little incantation that said in order to cause some magical change, which is why we don't do anything like that. We don't elevate the elements and walk around with them like they do in some of the in Roman Catholic churches and some others where we kind of venerate them or worship them or believe that there's some sort of transubstantiation that takes place. So chapter 29 is writing strongly against those sorts of things. But it says here, interestingly, and this is at the first paragraph under the list of asterisks there on page 127, private masses are ruled out. Now, at Synod this last year, we unanimously adopted a paper which is going to be incorporated into our governing standards that was written by our Theological and Social Concerns Committee that prohibits virtual Lord's Supper in our denomination. Praise the Lord. Um, this was a major sticking point, a contentious issue that I dealt with two and a half years ago, and that other men that I know who are pastoring in the non-denominational and Baptist world dealt with a number of years ago, and frankly, in some Presbyterian and Reformed churches as well. But our denomination has said, it is no Lord's Supper when the people are not gathered. The fact that Paul says between chapters 10 and 11 of 1 Corinthians, five times when you come together has to mean something. The context of the Lord's Supper is coming together. Right? And so private mass is, is not uh, prohibited according to our confessional standards. And now in our denomination, just know that virtual Lord's Supper is also prohibited uh, by rule. <clears throat> yes, sir. Dan. So let me, let, me, uh, let me invite some of the elders who are here to, to speak to this topic. I have uh, uh, an opinion, but I've not been here to observe that particular practice or lack thereof, so I want to defer right now. We've got a couple of elders here. Right. Okay. Yeah, the normal practice at Christ's Covenant and what I've always seen is uh, the Lord's Supper in the context of a worship service uh, that, that is, the sacrament is interpreted by the word, so always in the, in the context of the preached word and always with the gathered people. So um, using those as the, as the kind of primary rules We've not done that before. Um, it would take. It would be a pretty strange circumstance, I would think, where that might be entertained, and there would there would be some way to accomplish all those other things to do it. For example, we would have a service and bring enough people that we would have gathered people. So I'm saying, I'm, I think we would figure out a way to to fix to make everything right to make that happen if we were in a situation like. But we wouldn't just go. The problem is you get confused quickly by thinking that this person needs a little dose. Uh, right. Which means is you can quickly jump to the Roman Catholic view that this person needs a little bit of 
this sacrifice, this re-sacrifice to be justified in God's sight. And that, that's so misconstrued, uh, starting with the Roman Catholic Mass, and then as you go on down your need for communion. If you view it as anything else than a means of grace, then you get distorted quick. Yeah. So. Sonny? Yeah, I would agree with uh, what Eric said. I know in the previous ARP church I was in in Columbia, we did do it in assisted living and hospice facilities. Okay. And Probably I imagine there was a... Context of with a sermon with the reading of the word and enough elders gathered yes. so that they could get Right. So the church is represented. We passed around an elder present. Right. Okay. 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 Very good. That's good. That's good to know. Um, uh, yeah, Zach, did you have a question? Is that in the context yeah. of as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me? It's not necessarily like there. there's a time frame in which a shut-in has gone too long without the Lord's Supper. Is that... <laughs> well, yeah. we got a whole section on our Lord's Supper. Yeah. Yeah. Frequency. Um, yeah, let me get to that. Um, and that's a good question. Again, the, the, the paper that our denomination adopted um, talks about um, how in times of, for example, extreme uh, duress, pandemic or whatever, we view this as an opportunity to lament the fact that we're not able to participate with eager expectation of when we will. And if we never do this side of heaven, then the Lord's Supper is also pointing us to that greater wedding feast, the supper of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so nobody will get to heaven and not participate in the Lord's Supper when they get there. And so it's okay to go for even an extended period of time in this world without it because there are other means of grace available to us. All right. All right, I'm going to skip through this. Uh, talking about the basic structure of the sacraments, he talks about um, the, they've been given to the church. They're a sign and a seal, um, and there's no magical power in them, page 125. They're dependent upon the work of the Holy Spirit and the divine institution of God. Again, the, the divines identified a strong continuity between the Old and New Testaments, um, recognizing that the spiritual meaning of Passover and circumcision are synonymous with the meaning of baptism and the Lord's Supper uh, in the New Covenant. Uh, there are only two sacraments given to the church rather than seven, for example, um, in the Roman Catholic belief. And there's been those who have throughout history kind of posited a third foot-washing sacrament. Jesus instituted it and gave it, yet it doesn't have any sign or seal. There's no sacramental nature to it. It doesn't uh, uh, exhibit any promises of God, which is why it's not accepted or adopted among the Reformed um, perspectives. I do appreciate Hall's comment here at the bottom of 125. He says that these things, these sacraments, the definition of sacrament is defined in terms of divine, excuse me, is given in terms of divine definition. In other words, they sought to be very close to scripture as they wrote these difficult chapters. Sacraments are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace immediately instituted by God to represent Christ and his benefits and to confirm our interest in him. And to put a visible difference between us and those outside of the word or the word of the church, there is in every sacrament a spiritual relation or a sacramental union between the sign and the thing signified. 
In other words, that there is a, a, a real relationship between the elements of the sacraments, the water, the cup, and the bread, and the things that they signify. However, it's a spiritual reality, a sacramental union, rather than a, a corporeal relationship, whereby the bread and the wine are actually the body and blood of Christ. Uh, there are only two, and... Uh, We've already talked about that. Okay, Let, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip baptism for a minute because we have a Lord's Supper paper, and I want to emphasize that, and then I'll come back and I'm going to rapid-fire baptism um, <clears throat> uh, as, at the very end. This section here that Hall offers for additional study, this P. Robert Palmer uh, article is really helpful. He emphasizes a number of the things that I taught in the Sunday school class on baptism several months ago. I have other uh, suggested resources if you are particularly interested, uh, but we'll try to get to that at the end. In my delirium, I misinterpreted my small hand for my big hand, so it's later than I thought it was. All right. The sacraments. Uh, by Christ's institution, there are two sacraments in the church. Our, our position paper starts off by reflecting exactly on the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, it gives the particular language that I would encourage you to study and commit to uh, at least some sense of your memory uh, for the ability to communicate about these things with people who might have questions. For example, a new Roman Catholic visitor uh, who uh, wants to worship here. Um, the Lord's Supper is a sacrament, and so that's where we are now. By giving and receiving bread and wine, according to Christ's appointment, his death is showed forth. And the worthy receivers are, not after a corporal or carnal manner, but by faith, made partakers of his body and blood with all its benefits to their spiritual nourishment and growth in grace. That's a shorter catechism, question 96. And so this is a helpful definition of what the Lord's Supper is. Uh, by worthy receivers, uh, we do not mean um, people who are able to commend themselves to God, but rather those who have been commended to God by the blood of Christ. We're all unworthy uh, in our sin nature, but rather as we are brought before God in the blood of Jesus Christ and are received as righteous in his sight, not for anything in ourselves, but by his imputed righteousness alone, we are made worthy to participate in the supper that represents the broken body and shed blood of Christ on our behalf. We're commanded to examine ourselves, which is why we read the words of institution from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 prior to participation in the Lord's Supper. This, again, is not a call to perfection, but rather a call to repent, to mourn our sin, and to trust in the Holy Spirit to strengthen us as we grow in Christ. Um, wonderfully, I, I do think that, that here at Christ's Covenant, you all and your families and children have heard really well-articulated words concerning the meaning of the Lord's Supper when we participate in it. Uh, we're, we're made aware very plainly um, by either Neil or myself, or if an elder is leading uh, for some reason, the, the, what this table represents, what these elements represent, and why we're partake, partaking in them on the first Lord's Day of the month. By faith, we're made partakers of Christ's body and blood with all his benefits, and our spirits are nourished, and we grow in grace. The Lord's Supper is a means of grace, uh, which again, it, it doesn't communicate grace 
in some infusatory manner like the Roman Catholic Church would believe, but rather it's a means whereby God displays his grace to us uh, in the things signified. Heidelberg Catechism, for those who are truly sorrowful for their sins and yet trust that these are forgiven them for the sake of Christ and that the remaining infirmities are covered by his passion and death, and who also earnestly desire to have their faith more and more strengthened and their lives more holy. These are those who uh, are given the Lord's Supper. And then it says, but hypocrites and such as turn not to God with sincere hearts, eat and drink judgment to themselves, which is why we do what? What's that first thing we do after the words of institution? We fence the table, right? And we do that to protect people. We do that to protect people because they are eating and drinking judgment upon themselves uh, otherwise, we're given clear warning in Scripture um, in this uh, other paragraph here in the Lord's Supper. So communicant members, this is very helpful. We encourage the congregation to take special care with their covenant children, encouraging them to watch and consider what Christ has done for them, but to refrain from taking the elements until they can discern the body and blood of Christ broken and shed for their sin. When a family believes their child is at an appropriate level of spiritual maturity, the session will meet with the child, and upon hearing a profession of faith and good understanding of the sacrament, we will admit the child into the communicant membership of the church. Uh, That child will then take communicant membership vows in an upcoming service and then be admitted to the table. What a wonderful occasion that is in the life of a church to see a young believer participate in the Lord's Supper for the first time. And and let, let me just say this. Uh, just a little offline here, uh, just personally speaking. I hope that the more and more you study what our confession and scripture, maybe I'll put that the other way, what scripture and our confession teach about the sacraments, that you will find yourself increasing in joy when we administer the sacraments at Christ Covenant Church. I hope that the more you study these things and the more meaningful they become to you as you reflect on what the Bible teaches and what our confession articulates, that as we administer the sacraments here, you will find joy in doing so. Joy in watching others baptized, watching new communicant members take vows. And as the elements are passed across in front of you, first Lord's Day by first Lord's Day, that you will find yourself overwhelmed with the grace of God in having given us these signs and seals of his good promises and the benefits of Christ represented in them. This can't be a purely a doctrinal uh, position that we hold about what the Lord's Supper and baptism mean. It's practical theology. Now, we make two comments here at the bottom of our Lord's Supper pay, uh, paper on the elements and the frequency. We'll talk about frequency first. We acknowledge the decision of some churches to administer the sacrament at every worship service. We do believe that it's an important part of Christian growth and spiritual nourishment, and to faithfully administer requires significant time in a worship service. I, I'm really thankful that this is in here. So I know churches that do the every Sunday thing. That's great. Um, But there's going to be other elements of the service that suffer if you're going to administer the Lord's Supper thoroughly and well in light of the significance with which we hold it. That's all we're saying. We recognize that other parts uh, are going to um, suffer in light of the significant amount of time, uh, the part of a worship service that the Lord's Supper takes up, right? It usually takes us 16 to 20 minutes. 
But think about that in light of all the other elements of our worship service and our liturgical uh, approach to worship, the dialogical nature of our, of our morning worship services, and how much preaching of the word, reading of the word, singing of psalms and hymns, prayers and confessions, and so forth would be lost in light of that, especially because we're, we have two worship services. It would be near impossible to do every Lord's Day. And so we try, uh, largely unsuccessfully, to to kind of shrink back some of the other stuff on that first Sunday of the month in order to make room for the Lord's Supper, but we normally go over. Imagine if we did that every week, right? And so frequency, the Bible doesn't say every week. It says as often, like Zach pointed out, as often. And so that's left to the wisdom and discernment of the session to say here at Christ's Covenant, we believe that this makes sense for the spiritual nourishment of our people. I do hope that you notice, and I think that I've noticed this a number of times. I think that Neil, I don't know if he does this intentionally or not, but he draws our attention to the sacraments on other Sundays, just in preaching and and in the confession of sin and assurance of pardon and in the pastoral prayers as well. And so we're being reminded of these things weekly, even if we're not participating in the, in the elements weekly. And that's a, that's a good thing for a church to do. Now, the elements used in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper are normal, ordinary elements that are set aside for holy use. Again, we're not Roman Catholics, no transubstantiation here. The wine remains wine, the bread remains bread. We consider the specific details of the elements to be circumstances of the administration, and therefore not directly specified or commanded in Scripture. However, in selecting the elements, we believe that authenticity and symbolism symbolism are two guiding principles. So, although unleavened bread was used for the Passover meal, and in Christ's observance of it throughout his earthly life, Christ's institution of the Lord's Supper marks him as the fulfillment of the foreshadowing of the Passover. Therefore, a continuation of Passover with ceremonial adherence to the Mosaic elements, the institution by the law, is no longer required. In establishing the Lord's Supper as a new picture of this meal, the Greek word artos, ordinary bread, is used in the New Testament to describe the bread in relation to the Lord's Supper, rather than the unleavened bread, the zymos, specifically prescribed as part of the Passover meal. All that to say, we believe that either option could be used in the Lord's Supper today. Ordinarily, uh, ordinary leavened bread, we believe, was used by the early church, by most historical accounts. Therefore, wine and Bread is what we use at Christ Covenant Church. Uh, and this was actually recently updated um, in order to, to clarify and strengthen the language used here as to why we're doing it. We're not trying to uh, uh, violate any biblical commands or principles or rather, or even to bind anyone's conscience concerning elements. Rather, we believe that Scripture gives us this room. If we look at Christ's fulfillment, we have a... a, a um, an abrogation element in play here, the ceremonial context of the Passover law, uh, lamb or supper. And so we're able to use the ordinary leavened bread in our practice. Uh, much more to be said offline. Okay. You guys, can you give me seven minutes, six, seven minutes? Okay. Let's talk about baptism for a second. Um, our practice... <clears throat> at Christ Covenant Church, is what we call covenantal baptism. Now, often it's referred to as paedo-baptism, just meaning child or infant baptism. I think that the nomenclature paedo-baptism is less than helpful. Uh, It kind of envisions this group of of Presbyterians running around just baptizing babies willy-nilly. We don't baptize babies. We baptize covenant children. 
And so covenantal baptism is a much more biblical and uh, accurate reflection of our practice and belief. I heard uh, uh, someone who I consider to be a brilliant mind one time say that he became convinced of covenant baptism as he looked at the household passages of the New Testament, which I think are among the strongest uh, passages for, to make a case for covenantal baptism. And he said, really what I landed on was that I believe in oikobaptism, which demands a covenantal context, right? Oikos just meaning household or house, because God, from the beginning of his interaction with mankind, has interacted with households. There's a household principle that exists in Scripture from Abraham all, well, Noah, in fact, how, how many of Noah's family members were saved on the ark with him? All of them, in spite of the Bible not telling us that his wife or his sons or their wives or their kids were righteous in God's sight, Noah was. But because of the household principle, all of them were underneath the umbrella of God's covenantal protection and care. God entered into a covenant with Noah and with his family. God entered into a covenant with Abraham through his family. God refers to Isaac and Jacob and all their descendants. He talks about himself as the God of their parents and, and forefathers. And so there's a household familial context in Scripture of the way that God interacts with people. And so when we baptize a child, we're baptizing a child that's part of a covenant family, which is why our confession says it is not only... Uh, the solemn admission of the party baptized into the visible church, but also to be unto him a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. Uh, Oh, excuse me, part four, chapter 28, part four. Not only those that do actually profess faith and obedience unto Christ, but also the infants of one or both believing parents are to be baptized. So here's kind of a bottom line statement that I need to make. And you guys have heard Neil's three-part Uh, signification of baptism, yes? So he talks about in baptism that the waters represent three waters in Scripture, three pouring outs, pouring outs, pourings out in Scripture. Uh, You've got the water of God's judgment in the flood, which is promised to all mankind in their sin. God promises to judge the wicked and to punish them with by His wrath. And so the waters of baptism represent the fact that by faith, When you place your faith in Christ, He will take upon Himself the waters of God's judgment that you deserve. And so it's a seal, it's a sign of God's promise that if you repent and believe, God will take this watery wrath from you and put it on His Son. And the second is the waters of Ezekiel 36. I will sprinkle you with clean water and you will be clean from all your uncleanness, right? And so that sprinkling with hyssop idea is why we do effusion, by the way, and not immersion. We could talk about why baptism does not demand the idea of immersion in Scripture. Not tonight, obviously. But so we sprinkle clean water on a child or on a a professing believer because it represents the fact that God has said, when you put your faith in my son... I will cleanse you by sprinkling you with clean water. And so it signifies the cleansing washing of the blood of Christ that removes the stain of sin and guilt from our hearts. And then finally, Jesus promises the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which happens in uh, uh, Acts chapter 2 as a, as a pouring out. And so there's another promise being signified, another symbolism that's uh, uh, um, alive in the sacrament there that God promises to pour out his spirit on his children, men and women, boys and girls, all who profess faith in Christ, the spirit will be poured out upon them and they will be, uh, he will dwell in them by faith. And so the three part symbolism is, is part of our um, 
practice here at Christ Covenant Church. But the bottom line statement that I need to make is this. And, and I'm aware that in this room, I, I, I know that in this room and in a church this size, and in fact our membership vows, we make it very clear that you do not need to hold to all of the standards of the Westminster Confession or of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church as your own. Rather, you simply need to affirm that those things are rooted in Scripture. In other words, if you were a convinced uh, credo Baptist, and I'm not asking anybody to raise hands, but if you were a convinced credo Baptist in this room and you wanted to become a member of Christ's covenant church, you would have to at least be willing to say, while I disagree, I don't think you guys are crazy. I understand how you got there from scripture. Okay. So that's what we ask at membership that everybody who worships here and joins in membership recognizes that our doctrinal standards and our denominational standards are based on the word of God. However, to be an officer in the church requires you to subscribe to the doctrinal standards of our confession and denomination. And so I'm, I'm putting this out here just as, a, as a, a, a good faith effort to ensure that nobody walks out at the end of this 13 weeks going, but wait a minute, I thought that that was an exception. Um, <clears throat> we practice Covenantal baptism because we believe that Reformed theology as an expression of scriptural truth teaches this as the biblical command for Christ's church and his people. And that's a, that's a very straightforward way of saying it. Again, unapologetically, it has been the practice of the church historically from the beginning of its inception, which uh, you can look at some of the evidence for that here, although that in and of itself does not prove the point, but rather it's an expression of what Scripture teaches about the household principle, about God's relationship to men and women and their children by His covenant, and what the church really is in the world, that invisible church in the world. And so we are a covenantal Baptist church. We're a Presbyterian church. It demands it. Okay, by virtue of our ecclesiology and our Reformed theology. I know that there are a lot of Reformed Baptists and Reformed Charismatics out there and so on and so forth. What they really mean is we like tulip and charismatic stuff and Baptist, credo baptism and so forth. But the whole uh, system of doctrine that is Reformed theology is, is uh, um, it's a real tall Jenga tower. Okay, And so it, it stands on the interrelatedness of its component parts. And so you can't get to a full-throated affirmation of Reformed theology in all that it teaches and leave out the covenant baptism element. Now, I'm not saying that to, to make waves or to uh, cast aspersions or anything like that. I know that some of you are not uh, fully convinced of those things. Again, I would refer you to uh, Mary, who chose the better portion. I would encourage you to sit at Jesus' feet and ask questions about this and look at Scripture and read good books and talk to men like Eric and like Rick and like Sonny and DeWitt who can encourage you in these things and talk to you about them. I'm not trying to draw lines of division either. Rather, I'm simply expressing that what Reformed theology in its entirety teaches, which we hold to and practice at Christ Covenant Church, includes covenantal baptism. It's part of our standards for a reason. 
now, we don't exalt the standards over and above the Word of God. We believe that they accurately represent what Scripture teaches. And so I'm saying this in this context among you men who aspire to the office of overseer or deacon because it's important for you all, particularly and especially, to come to terms with this uh, issue. If it's a, ro- a speed bump for you, that's okay. But you need to figure out how to climb over it or, or put the car in park. This level of, of detail is not part of our membership vows, and, uh, and it's not even part of our baptism practice on a Sunday morning when a child's baptized. We talk about the, the signification and the sign and the sealing of baptism, but this amount of detail is for this class and now apparently anybody who listens online. Yeah, again, the, it, I, I apologize if it comes off uh, in this setting as too much of a blanket statement, or it's certainly not intended to be confrontational against any of you men in particular. Uh, even those that I know hold to a different perspective or are working through some of these things right now. It's rather just meant to be, um, we just want to be clear and articulate about what we believe um, and the significance of it at this at this stage in your membership, as you guys are thinking about office in the church, uh, this is something that you really have to consider. Um, it's one thing, I, 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 I equate it this way, it's one thing for a bunch of high school guys to like play military with their uniforms, their dad's old uniforms and stuff in the woods, and it's another to go to boot camp and decide to join the military. And at some point, you got to say, I love playing in the woods with the camis on, but if I want to actually go to war, i got to go to boot camp and get through this thing and decide what I believe about service, right? And so that's kind of where you guys are. You're at the, you're at the MEP station waiting to get your physical and to see if you're going to join. And that's okay. It really is. And there is not a man among us uh, in, the, in the church of the elders here who would look at anybody here who says, look, I, this is just the one thing that I'm not there. I understand what you guys are talking about, and I'm not there. We're not going to be like, oh, great, now we got, you know. We've given them all the good stuff, and now they're not going to, you know, go on a second date with us. We understand. We understand that this is. It's, it tends to be. It tends to be. I don't know what you guys think that illustration meant, but it clearly, clearly not what I intended. Uh, you know, for many, many people, this tends to be the last kind of obstacle that they go over. Um, and I understand that from personal experience. And like Eric said, I would be thrilled to sit down and have a lengthy conversation or many conversations with you. Um, the, our confession so thankfully says that salvation is not so annexed unto it that a person cannot be saved without the administration of the sacrament. And so for those of you who have not baptized your covenant children or will not baptize your covenant children, the the confession makes it very clear in chapter 26 that salvation is not so annexed unto the administration of the sacrament that you cannot be saved without it. Okay? And so that's a helpful statement made in in that passage, recognizing that among the divines there were divergent positions and among good Christian churches there are divisions on this topic uh, and it certainly shouldn't cause us to break fellowship right uh, especially among this group here 
Uh, Rick, can I ask you to close us in prayer, please?